Hello everyone and welcome to the Unanswered Questions True Crime Podcast. I have spent hours and hours investigating this. He basically told her that people have been killed. Journalists, independent investigators, people like that disappeared. It frightened her to the bone. There's more to the story than meets the eye. There were rumors of torture and homicide and sexual abuse, all sorts of egregious, horrendous crimes. He was polygraphed three times. Each of those three showed evasions. His resumes were a skeleton of truth. He was mad at the world, and particularly mad at the government. The study that he commissioned that described a fictional terrorist attack. If people have died over this, it means you're getting close to the truth. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to say, what the fuck? Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Money Podcast, Unanswered Christians, where every week we'll endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy and as always leave me some feedback on what you think about the show and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the Father's Day Bank Massacre. The Father's Day Bank Massacre was a bank robbery and shooting that took place on Sunday, June 16th of 1991 at the United Bank Tower, now the Wells Fargo Center, in Denver, Colorado. The perpetrator killed four unarmed bank guards and held up six tellers in the bank's cash vault. An estimated $200,000 was stolen from the bank. Nearly three weeks later, on July 4th of 1991, authorities arrested retired police officer James W. King for the crime. The subsequent trial was broadcast nationally on court TV, the same TV station that covered the O.J. Simpson case in its entirety. After days of deliberation, the jury acquitted King. None of the stolen money was ever found. The crime remains unsolved and is considered a cold case. For many Coloradans, the biggest whodunit for the last 25 years has been who killed JonBenet Ramsey. But even before the death of the little six-year-old girl, there was another murder case that has still never been solved. It was 30 years ago today that someone, or a couple someones, walked into the United Bank on 17th and Broadway, now the Wells Fargo Bank building, and killed four guards and robbed the bank of nearly $200,000. Video the next day showed police and investigators questioning people driving by looking for clues. One person was arrested, James King, a former police officer and a former bank guard, but King was acquitted at trial. And I had a chance to talk with one of King's defense attorneys about how he looks back at the case and the trial today. I was disturbed about a number of factors. Uh, number one, that each of the eyewitnesses had been shown a book with uh, photos of past and present guards at the United Bank building, a total of 50 photos, and they looked over them very carefully. Jim King's photo was in there. He had worked in the bank the year previously, uh, and no one, no one picked Jim King's photograph out of that 50 uh, photograph array. There was physical evidence of a footprint. Somebody tried to kick in a door and it was a really good footprint. Uh, it didn't match Jim King's shoe size or his shoes. Finally, uh, the fact that there was a bizarre um, alarm that went off at 5.04 in a tunnel records room, uh, which some guard, and we don't know who, then put it on access for four and a half hours, which permitted anybody to come and go to this tunnel room which did lead to the cash fault. Fascinating case, and the trial was covered by Court TV. Since the acquittal, James King has died. No one else was ever arrested. Scott Robinson there told me he doesn't think the case will ever be solved. 
unless there's a deathbed confession from someone who has not been identified yet. Now we get into a timeline of the bank heist. First we have bank entry and murder of the guards. The United Bank Tower had previously allowed its guards to be armed, but had changed their policy less than a year before the robbery, requiring the guards to be unarmed. At approximately 4am on Sunday, June 16th of 1991, Father's Day, an alarm went off in a basement storage room at the United Bank Tower. Bank records showed a guard and control centre turned off the alarm and took no further action. It is unknown if this mysterious incident had anything to do with the upcoming robbery, and that was never established. At 9.14am, a man identifying himself as Robert Bardwell, a vice president at the bank, asked for entry into the bank through a side freight elevator. He called the bank's guard room using a street-level security phone. Guard William McCullum Jr. responded by riding the elevator up from the guard room. When the elevator doors opened, the gunman forced McCullum to ride to the sub-basement area of the bank. There, the gunman killed McCullum, hid his body in a storage room, and took his electric pass card. The killer made his way through the bank tunnels up one floor to the bank's basement level area which housed the vault and guard station. During the journey, the intruder set off an alarm at 9.20am when entering a stairwell. The intruder made his way into the vault area and first entered the guard room. There, the gunman forced two guards, Philip Mankoff and Scott McCarthy, into a battery room where both men were shot and killed. Investigators believed a third guard, Todd Wilson, returned to the area during or immediately after the shooting. Upon his return, Wilson was shot several feet away from the battery room where Markoff and McCarthy lay. Upon investigation, police determined the shooter fired 18 shots during the killing spree, hitting his victim with all except one of them. None of the four murdered bank guards were armed. Before leaving the guardroom and entering the vault area, the intruder removed and tampered with evidence so as to eliminate any trace of his identity. The perpetrator seized 10 videotapes, bank keys, a two-way radio, and pages of the guard logbook. The killer left no trace behind, wiping away any fingerprints. Now we come to the holdup of tellers in the actual robbery. Electronic bank records indicated that the intruder opened the vault door at 9.48am. At that time, six vault employees were on duty processing cash deliveries. The intruder demanded that the employees cover their faces and lie on the floor. He ordered the senior vault manager, David Baranko, to fill a satchel with cash from the workstations. Before leaving the scene, the assailant forced the tellers to crawl into a small room near the vault, otherwise known as a man trap. The robber made his escape at 9.56am, according to the electronic records, leaving the tellers locked in the man trap. Using a broken spoon found on the man trap's door sill, the tellers freed themselves approximately 20 minutes after the robbery. Prior to leaving the scene, the robber collected all the spent shell casings, known as policing your brass, that had been removed from his revolver after firing it. The only physical evidence he left behind was the 18 bullets he fired. The surviving bank employee said the man appeared to be in his late 50s or 60s, wearing a grey sport coat, a white shirt, a multicoloured necktie, blue or grey slacks, a brown fedora hat and mirrored sunglasses, and had a bandage on his left cheek. The victims throughout this whole event were Philip Mankoff, age 41, William McCullum Jr., age 33, Scott McCarthy, age 21, and Todd Wilson, also age 21. 
Now we come to the arrest and the controversial trial of James King. The ensuing police investigation involved more than 40 FBI agents and two dozen detectives. Investigators were baffled as to why the robber never filled the entire satchel with cash and only stole approximately $200,000, a mere 10% of the more than $2 million available in the cash room and vault. They also did not understand why he murdered the four guards but left the other bank employees unharmed since the guards were unarmed and did not present any more of a threat than the other employees at the scene. And that's something I also struggle with. Well, first off, why would you only take 200000 And second off, why would you kill all the bank guards? That seems really strange to me that this person did this because it seems out of character. I mean, normally a bank robber, if he sees unarmed bank guards, you just leave him in there. Killing a bank guard is only going to bring more heat on top of yourself. And it's only going to lead you to more jail time. So why would you kill bank guards that are unarmed? It doesn't make any sense. And why would you only take 200000 it, it seems to me as if the murderer was methodical knew what he wanted knew what he was doing and it was interesting how he knew the layout of the bank knew the man trap knew forensic evidence kind of things like he knew how to police his brass he knew what evidence to get rid of that he would never be caught that means that to me it leads me to believe that he had prior training in police forensics and procedure at least to some extent that doesn't mean that he knows everything but at least he knows the bare minimums of how to get away with a crime and not leave behind incriminating evidence and he was also a very good marksman so whoever this guy was he knew what he was doing Police quickly determined the man could not have been Bank Vice President Robert Bardwell, the name the robber used to gain entry at the freight elevator, as the real Bardwell was vacationing in the mountains with his family at the time. From the beginning of the robbery investigation, authorities suspected that the killer was associated in some way with the bank, which I do agree with. There was also some suspicion that the robber may have been a police officer due to having fired 18 rounds, a standard load carried by officers on duty. I will come back to the bullets as well. That became a key piece in the court case later on so i'll come back to that later in this podcast investigators questioned current and former bank employees until narrowing their search to james king who was a retired denver police officer and a former guard of the at the bank now, as I understand it, after retiring from the Denver Police Department in 1986, King worked as a part-time guard at the bank between 1989 and 1990, leaving the job 10 months before the robbery. King and his wife had declared bankruptcy a year after he retired from the force and still had substantial debt in 1991, including some $25,000 in credit card bills. King was arrested on the evening of July 4th of 1991. A search of his house found no physical evidence connecting him to the robbery. The only suspicious things found were a detailed map of the bank, building interior, and a folder marked plans, and five phony ID cards containing King's picture with different aliases. These phony ID cards would be suppressed by a judge and not included as evidence in his trial on the grounds that it was never established King had ever used them in any illegal activity, nor could they be connected in any way to the robbery and murders. A jury of seven men, five women, and two alternates were chosen on the morning of May 19th, 1992. The trial began the same day in the afternoon. Now we get into the prosecution's case and their evidence as to why King may have committed this robbery. Denver Deputy District Attorney Bill Buckley led the prosecution against King. The prosecution contended that several pieces of circumstantial and eyewitness evidence pointed to King's role in the crime. The arguments presented by the prosecution included as follows. Five of the six surviving bank employees identified King as the robber. However, they only picked him out of a photo lineup on a second viewing after the police had drawn a hat 
hat and sunglasses over the faces on the photos so they would resemble what the robber was wearing. A map of the bank building interior was found in King's house inside a folder labelled plans, as I mentioned before. King had carried a 38 Colt trooper as a service revolver when he was a police officer which he kept after his retirement and had also used as his duty weapon when he worked at the bank. It was the same type of weapon that was used in the crime. Police had not found the weapon in King's house and when asked where it was, King said he disposed of it because of a cracked cylinder. That gun has never been located. Police also did not find King's Denver Police Department issued gun belt or speed loaders in his house. King said he'd gotten rid of them since he no longer needed them after leaving his job as a bank guard. When asked why he did not return them to the Denver Police Department when he retired, he said it was because no one there had told him to bring them back. King was a former employee of the bank and thus allegedly understood the security systems. King also shaved his moustache after the crime, and King also purchased a larger safety deposit box the day after the crime. FBI agent Lloyd Cubbinson testified the stolen money measured up to be 1,009 cubic inches, almost the exact amount as the 1,000 cubic inch capacity of King's new safety deposit box, implying King had deliberately stolen a specific amount of money that would fit in the box. Defense attorney Walter Goresh objected to his, to his testimony as wishful thinking, pointing out that this did not factor in other items police had found when they searched the box and the dimensions of the money did not match the dimensions of the box. When asked where he was during the robbery, King said he had gone to the Capitol Hill Community Center for a match with the Denver Chess Club. However, none of the employees there remembered seeing him or remembered anyone asking about a chess match that day. And the Denver Chess Club had not held matches at the Capitol Hill Community Center for years. 17 of the robber's 18 shots hit his victims, implying that the robber was well trained in firearms. Bank Vice President Robert Bardwell, whose name had been used by the robber, testified he had previously lost his bank access card, which he had reported missing on August 13th of 1990. James King had resigned from the bank on August 12th of 1990. He also testified guards routinely patrolled by his office. Now, this is where the bullets become a very integral and interesting part of the story, as I have mentioned before. The 18 bullets fired at the crime scene came from five different brands of manufacturers. It was highly unusual for one gun used in one crime to fire so many different brands of bullets. In the Denver police, it was a common practice for police to deposit spare rounds and bullet buckets and use those same brands to load their duty weapons. Since King was a former Denver police officer and the Denver police used many different brands of ammo, this would explain why the robber's gun fired so so many different ammo brands. Now we get to the defense's case. Attorney Walter Goresh and Scott Robinson defended King. The key elements of their case were that no physical evidence tied King to the crime, neither the murder weapon nor any of the stolen money had ever been found. None of the witnesses to the crime reported the robber wearing gloves, yet King's fingerprints were not found at the scene. The large safety deposit box King purchased after the crime was not found to contain anything incriminating. Eyewitness identification was unreliable. I mean, Robinson showed witnesses to the crime a picture of a man disguised with a hat, sunglasses, and a moustache, just like the robber. None of the witnesses could identify him, and Robinson revealed the man was famous actor Harrison Ford, made famous by Star Wars by playing Han Solo. James King had plainly visible moles on his face, yet none of the witnesses had mentioned moles in their initial descriptions of the robber to the police or to the police sketch artist. 
James Prado, the former head of bank security, testified that the man trap had not been installed in the tower until after King had stopped working there, meaning he would not have known how to expertly manipulate it as the robber did. Prado also testified the map of the bank found in King's house was a standard issue map that was given to all bank guards and they were not required to return them upon leaving the job. Under cross-examination, Robert Bardwell said he had never seen King before and he had not worked weekends at the bank since 1989, which were the only days King worked at the bank. He also said he was not sure of the precise day he'd lost his bank access card. A convicted bank robber named Dewey Calvin Baker had at one point confessed to the reporters that he committed the crime, though he later recanted this. Another alternate suspect was former bank guard Paul Yoakum, who had been tried and acquitted for stealing $30,000 from a United Bank ATM on Memorial Day weekend in 1990. He also lived less than a mile from the United Bank Tower. FBI agents William McMath and Charles Evans testified that when they went to investigate Yoakum's apartment, they found a closet door secured with handcuffs. Inside the closet, they found boxes of 38 and 357 caliber ammunition, as well as a police scanner and speed loaders, baton replicas of badges of several police organizations, and dummy grenades. Yoakum also had no alibi for the time the robbery took place. One of King's neighbors testified that she saw her mowing his lawn at the time the bank was robbed. She even yelled a Father's Day greeting to him. After 53 hours of jury deliberation, King was acquitted of all charges. Jurors said they walked Jim King for one simple reason. There just wasn't enough evidence to convict. The um, prosecution failed to prove guilt. No hard evidence, no positive eyewitnesses, but lots of doubt. The law says guilty beyond reasonable doubt. It says guilty or not guilty. As the jurors left the courthouse after nine days of deliberation, they insisted that the not guilty verdict was never in doubt. They also insisted juror Dorothy Stevenson wasn't the only early holdout and refused to talk about any deliberation discord. Mr. King, did you commit these crimes? No, I did not. Juror said King's own testimony helped convince them. I believed it, personally. Juror said their only regret was for the victim's families. And I deeply regret the fact that this difficult verdict will do nothing to relieve their grief and anguish. The jurors looked exhausted as the trial ended. This is probably the most difficult thing that any of us have done in our lives. The not guilty verdict means King can never be charged with robbery or murder again by state prosecutors. But if new evidence is ever developed implicating him in the crime, he could be charged in federal court. At the Denver Courthouse, Dave Mitchell, Colorado 7 News. After the trial, the FBI kept King under observation for years, hoping to find something they could charge him with that was not prevented by double jeopardy procedure, but they found nothing. King lived what was described as a hermit's existence at his home at 665 Jumpiness Street in Golden, Colorado. He died of dementia at a nearby hospice on May 21 of 2013 at the age of 77. His wife, who had stayed with him, predeceased him in 2009. 
Four months after the verdict, Paul Yoakum died of a heart attack at age 52. In 1997, King's attorney Walter Goresh, along with Phil Goldstein, published a book about the case entitled Murders in the Bank Vault, The Father's Day Massacre and, and Trial of James King. To this day, this crime remains unsolved. Both the bank robber and the money never been found. In terms of impact here in Colorado, to have four probably purely innocent men murdered on Father's Day and have a whodunit as to who committed the crime, who robbed the bank, that really got the interest of the public. And it got some national interest. After all, Court TV made it the first non-celebrity trial ever broadcast gavel to gavel. Unless that person confesses now, the crime will never be solved. There was no hair. There was no fiber. There was no DNA at all. There was no indication that the robber wore gloves, which is an interesting sidelight. And some of the actions taken by the robber made it clear that that individual or those individuals really didn't know the the insides and outsides of the United Bank building all that well. Uh, And I think that was also a factor in the case. But I don't think it'll ever be solved unless we have a deathbed confession from someone yet unidentified. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remain unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I've covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time, next on Unanswered Questions. The Lost Dutchman's Gold Mine, also known by similar names, is according to legend a rich gold mine hidden somewhere in the southwestern United States. 